Lovely to be with you again. Thanks for coming. <laughs> um, uh, I want to start out um, by telling you a really disappointing thing that happened in my life. Um, Ruth was, I don't think this was as disappointing for Ruth. Um, uh, Ruth and I went and saw a movie a week and a half ago. And after watching this movie uh, called Mission Impossible, I told my wife Ruth, I don't want to be a pastor anymore. I want to be a spy. Um, except, you know, like a, a nonviolent spy because I don't, I, I don't do well with violence, but I, I was real excited and we came home and I was doing somersaults and I can't do cartwheels, but I was going to be a spy. And then I had the most tremendous letdown. I realized I'm not a spy and I'm not going to be a spy. And and, and, and I'm not kidding, I was, I was really immersed in this world, this imaginative world. Ruth can testify, she can testify Ruth, be a good Baptist, testify. <laughs> I was going to be a spy, and to make matters worse for Ruth, we got a rental car this last week, and it's this big SUV, and it's large and black, and it looks like it could shoot, you know, rockets out of it. And I'm driving around, and I feel like a spy, but I'm not. It's just a big letdown. And here today, I want to talk about what could have been viewed as quite a letdown, right? Quite a letdown. We talked last week as we were introducing about how uh, when you teach a child to walk, we just taught Moses to walk, or he just started walking. (laughs) Uh, You know, you walk along, hold their hands, and then they, pretty soon they start to go on their own. But they just want to know you're you're right there. Your presence is right behind them. And so we talked last week about how um, we take our cue from Acts 1-1, and I think this is our first slide, um, or our second slide. It says in Acts 1-1, Luke writes, in my former book, Theophilus, which means the lover of God, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which leads us to believe that a better uh, title, you know that these titles were added later, a better title is, wouldn't be the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit, but Jesus Part 2, <laughs> or the Deeds and the Teachings of Jesus Part 2. Right? And this is the crazy thing. Look to your right. Look to your left. And just shake your heads. Because, folks, you guys are Jesus part two. (laughs) You guys are supposed to be Jesus part two. You're supposed to be living out. That's his calling. And through the Spirit, now we don't have, the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet in Acts chapter one, but through the Holy Spirit, we are called to live out the kingdom. So we've got what we're going to see in today's lesson, we're going to see in this bit, the exaltation of the king and the enthronement of the king. So the king is fully reigning and what that means for us. Now, just a little something before we get going. So what do we have next, Daniela? Okay, convincing proofs. In Acts 1.3, it says... Jesus came and he spent 40 days with the disciples, with the apostles, and he showed them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, we shouldn't take proofs 
um, in the modern sense of, you know, he, he wrote out the, all the proofs for God's existence, right? Like Thomas Aquinas, like, you know, here's the argument from design. Look at the world around you. It's so beautiful and therefore God exists. Now here's the moral argument. No, it's not proofs like that. And it's definitely not like a, a test tube kind of proof. It's not that because uh, these proofs can't be demonstrated. They're, they're not something that you can perform over again with the scientific method. These proofs would have been something more like um, Jesus coming and saying, hey, I'm alive. And then you looking at him and seeing, oh, he's alive. That would have been a pretty convincing proof. Now, the reason this is important is because how many people were expecting the Messiah to die? How many people in first century Israel? Goose egg. How many people in first century Israel were expecting the Messiah to die and rise again? Zero. Goose egg. How many people expected the Messiah to die, rise again, and then ascend? Nobody. And furthermore, how many believed that the Messiah would come and be God himself? No one. No one. And so these convincing proofs are quite important. And you could imagine, and as you probably went through the questions this week, you're probably imagining, yeah, there's probably a lot of confusion going, or, going, uh, going around, right, in this passage. Now, it strikes me as kind of a silly endeavor. We're going to be talking about the ascension, but it strikes me as kind of silly to go on and talk about the ascension and what it means without first talking about the resurrection. Because if you're having trouble wrapping your head around the resurrection today, guess what? You're in good company because no one can wrap their heads around the resurrection. It was not expected. And even the people who witnessed the risen Christ, Christ did not think it was an easy thing to believe. So let us get it out of our head that the resurrection was an easy thing to believe in. It was not. Uh, so, uh, so you have, for instance, at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, and that right before he gives the Great Commission, it says, all worshipped, so they're worshipping Jesus, who is a man, which you shouldn't do in, in a monotheistic faith, right? So they're worshipping Jesus, and it says, all worshipped, but some doubted, Right? And then uh, in Luke's gospel, you've got the men on the road to Emmaus. They didn't, they weren't expecting any of this to happen, right? Uh, Mary Magdalene, she doesn't expect, even when she first hears Jesus, she doesn't expect, she thinks it's the gardener. Um, nobody is expecting this to happen. And even when they behold the risen Christ, they still have questions. And it's still very difficult for, the, for them to wrap their minds around this. All right. So if we as modern folk, you know, sometimes we can kind of get on a high horse and say, well, I've been to college and I learned that dead people don't rise because I learned science. Well, that's just stupid <laughs> because people in the first century, guess what? They knew dead people don't rise. And they also knew, you know, we could be like, oh, I'm modern and I'm post-enlightenment. I went to college and I learned people don't just levitate off the ground and go into outer space. That's not what they were thinking. <laughs> Give them a little credit. That's not what these writers are talking about. All right? This was a very difficult thing for them to believe in, and yet they had to deal with a few things. So what we have with the, with the resurrection, as I said, 
No first century Jew was expecting a dying Messiah. No one was expecting a rising Messiah. And these, believe it or not, these are good reasons to believe that he rose from the dead. Because why else, if this is not true, why else would anyone, why would you make up a story like this? Because no one was expecting this. No one. Uh, What do we have next? No first century Jew believed that the Messiah would be God. And let's consider, for a moment, let's consider other would-be Messiahs. Let's talk about, oh, I don't know, how about uh, Judas Maccabeus? Do we have that picture here? No, that's good. Um, (laughs) Judas Judas Maccabeus was a big, glowing blue ball. Um, No, Judas, Judas Maccabeus... Around 168 to 165 BC, guess what he did? He cleansed the temple. He defeated the Greeks, ran them out of Israel, started a dynasty, and was greeted by the people with what? Palm branches. Now, when Judas Maccabeus died, could you imagine anyone saying to their, to their fellow comrades, you know, I have this warm feeling in my heart. I've had this spiritual experience. I think Judas Maccabeus is still with us. He's still, I I think he's the Messiah. No. Here's why. (laughs) By definition, to be the Messiah, if you read the, you know, the job qualifications, you have to be alive. Right? To be the king, you have to be alive. So dead Messiah means no Messiah. So Simon Bar Kokhba, for instance, in 132 to 135 AD, leads a revolt. And everyone's like, whoop-de-doo, we're winning, we're beating the Romans. That lasts for only about three years, because the Romans, turns out, it turns out they're really good at killing people. And so everyone's real excited. This is the Messiah. Going to restore the temple. Kick some Roman butt. And God will return to Zion. That, those were the three expectations. What happens? He's killed in battle. Does anyone say to their partner, you know what? I've got this really nice warm feeling in my heart. And I I really believe that he was the Messiah. Was the Messiah makes no sense. Past tense, was the Messiah makes no sense. All right? So, these are reasons to believe that these are not made up stories. Because if you were trying to write propaganda and convince people that Jesus had rose from the dead, you definitely wouldn't do it this way. The only way you would write the story and say, guess what? The Messiah came and died and then rose again from the dead and then ascended into heaven? The only reason you would write that as a first century Jew is if it were true. And if you were writing it down thinking, I don't know, (laughs) I don't know how, I don't know why, but I'm writing this down because this is what I saw. And that's what we have in the gospel accounts. Have you ever noticed? They don't try to explain why or how God did this. It doesn't give us a nice, tidy uh, theory of the atonement. Right? Because the witnesses are just writing what they saw. And so if it's difficult for you to believe, you know, on, on those Tuesday mornings when you're a little bit cranky, and you wake up a little bit, if it's difficult to believe in the morning or halfway through the day, my life is based on a dying and risen man who is also God. If, it's that, if that's difficult, welcome to the club. That's all of us. All right? So let's, let's all worship. 
And some of us are doubting, but that's all good. Because faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's just throwing your whole selves, when you're ready, it's just whole, throwing your whole weight, your whole selves into the promises and the story of this God who's revealed himself through Jesus. Amen? Yeah? Okay. So we can, we can go on from there. So whatever we do, we, we don't pretend that this was an easy thing to believe. All right? Um, I'm going to move on to the kingdom of God. Acts 1-3. After it says he gave many convincing proofs, it then says he's spending 40 days talking about the kingdom of God. All right? 40 days with the risen Jesus. That's plenty of time, right? (laughs) That's plenty of time. So what would you imagine? He's trying to tell them about the kingdom of God. What do you think he might be saying? You can interact with me. It's cool. I'll get off the stage. <laughs> what would you imagine? Equal. Okay, what? Equal. equal. Oh, oh, so we're all equal. Everyone is equal. Yeah, so, so like we said yesterday, in the words of Paul, hey, guess what? No more slave, nor free. No male, nor female. No, no race, no ethnicity, no status, right? We're all There's no room for judgment at all, right? Okay, great. What else? Kingdom of God. Okay, eternality. Yes. Everlasting. What else? Yes, Lorna. Fantastic. I didn't even plant her. She said, it's an upside-down kingdom. Upside-down kingdom. Um, And we might even say, uh, in order to write the upside-down kingdom of the world, Jesus came to show us the right-side-up kingdom, but it looks upside-down, right? When uh, the apostles are going around, remember, the people are saying, oh my goodness, these guys are turning the world upside-down. Well, it's actually the opposite. It would look to the outside world like they're turning everything on 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 its head, and that's because it's true. It's just that they've got it wrong. The world is upside-down And the apostles' job, the disciples' job, is to turn it right side up. And what I imagine, and I know I'm stepping on a question you have, what I imagine is, as he teaches about the kingdom of God, he's saying a lot of the same stuff. It would be a review session. He's like, okay, let's go through these parables again. The kingdom of God is like yeast. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like a great banquet. The kingdom of God is, oh, guess what? You have to be like a child. So give up your status if you want to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is about uh, serving, uh, giving food to those who don't have food, water to those who don't have water, visiting the sick, um, helping the poor, visiting the prisoner, um, welcoming the homeless into your own house. Remember that? That's an uncomfortable one. <laughs> Luke 14, 12 through 14, right? When you throw a party, bring in the people who can't pay you back. So that's what the kingdom is about. All right? So I, I would imagine he's saying a lot of the same stuff He's kind of doing a review. And what would you imagine the, the 11 apostles' reaction is? Probably like, oh, now that you're dead and risen, I understand all of your parables. <laughs> no. No, because clearly they're still, they're, their minds are still stuck 
Look, two places they get stuck. Not a bad question, Lord. Uh, so, so is this the time you're going to redeem Israel? And by the way, remember when we asked for the for for the thrones right next to you? Huh? Is this a good time to bring that up? Right? Well, let's not be too hard on them because this was a promise of God to restore Israel, but they just didn't have the full picture. Right? And so I imagine Jesus is explaining over 40 days. Again, he's explaining the kingdom of God, and they're probably like, oh yeah, I get that. What was that? What, what, what did, you, did you get that? Because, uh, right? Can we compare notes after? That's what I would imagine is going on. Because even after he ascends, another thing they weren't expecting, right? The men are just like, uh, I guess we're not spies, right? Huge disappointment. Well, I, I, use that, I use that analogy because I imagine me being disappointed and not being a spy is probably like losing Jesus. Is it roughly the same level? No? Okay. All right. All right. For me, it was very personal. It was very inward. Okay. All right. So let's move on to the God then. Um, so we've just talked about in Acts 1.6. They say, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And then later, in Acts 3.21, Peter is preaching, and he, Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, knows exactly what the restoration is. It's not just the restoration of this land, right? It's the restoration of all things. Peter knows how to preach. And this is exactly what Jesus has uh, spoken about to the rich young ruler. He talks about the renewal of all things. All things. All things. Sometimes we focus on, sometimes we say, oh, Acts is the story of the spread of the gospel. Guess what? The good news of the gospel that's going out is you can individually pray a prayer and go to heaven. Happy day. No, 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 no. That's a small gospel. That's not, that good news isn't good enough. That's not good enough. The good news is about new king, new kingdom. The king is universal, meaning the kingdom is universal, meaning the rule is over all things, meaning the redemption, the mission, is for the recovery of everything. And in 2 Corinthians 5, we're told that God is reconciled to his entire creation. Is. Present tense. And then at the very end of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, now be reconciled to him. Right? It's like, uh, uh, sometimes we imagine uh, the father of the prodigal son, you know, uh, waiting, 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 and here comes the prodigal son, and he's like, and then when he runs out and hugs him, that's forgiveness. And I would suggest to you, no. <laughs> the prodigal son is forgiven the moment he leaves. That's the picture of God that we know. Right? The prodigal son is forgiven the moment he leaves. We are reconciled to God. The question is, will you be, today, will you be reconciled to him? Will you just say, thank you? It's really that simple. As much study as we do, it's really that simple. He's reconciled to you. Just say, thank you, and receive it. All right. Um, let's look at, let's look at now, the ascension, and this is where I want to spend most of our time. Um, when Jesus says, okay, so the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses, 
in Jerusalem, right? Here's, here's our map. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? Witnesses would be in, in king and kingdom language, which we're unused to. It would be very uh, similar to saying, and you're going to be my heralds. You are going to be the heralds of the king. You're all going to go out in the land and you're going to say one word, a word that everyone in the Roman Empire knew. It was Greek, but everyone in the Roman Empire knew this word. And it was euangelion. And when you heard someone running through the streets shouting, euangelion, euangelion, literally translated to good news, but what it meant was, oh, the old king is dead, long live the king. The old order of things is passing away, and the new way has come. And this, this isn't just about a new Caesar coming onto the throne. This is about a completely, as Lorna said, a completely upending Messiah coming and taking the throne and saying, okay, now that I've shown you how I took the throne, and let's, say, let's review here for a second. How does Jesus take his throne? How does Jesus take his crown? How is he exalted? Well, John tells us, in the words of Jesus, when I am exalted, I will draw all to myself. John loves his plays on words, right? Like Jeff Reed, right? When I am raised up. So when I'm on the cross, he's basically saying, when I'm most crucified, I'm most glorified. Whoa, is that too paradoxical for you? It should be. When I'm at my deadest, that's when I'm coming into my kingdom. That's when I'm starting to reign. Whoa, that should blow you away. Right? When, when I become, when I fully take on the vocation of the despised and the rejected, the one, the one acquainted with sorrows, the one who is so mangled in appearance that people turn away from me, that's your cue. That's when you know I'm becoming king. Whew. That's upside down, folks. To our way of thinking, right? We need a renewing of our minds, right? Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Everything we think out there is upside down, and we need a renewing of our minds today, right? So with the ascension, we get a continue, a continue, uh, a continuing of this story. Jesus takes his crown by dying, by rising up, and w when when he's experienced the resurrection, remember Mary in the book of John grabs hold of him, and he says, "Don't grab hold of me. I haven't yet." ascended to my father, right? Now, Jesus isn't rebuking her because he's like got some kind of, you know, uh, hocus pocus, mystical, magical powers and like don't touch the clothes because it's not ready yet and you're going to contaminate my fine shiny linens. No, he's saying, don't hold on to this because I've got so much, I've got something so much better than the resurrection for you. And guess what it is? I'm going to leave. Right? Don't hold on to this moment. You think this is fantastic, and it is. 
but I'm going to ascend. And the reason that is so important is because the ascension is, the ascension is Jesus taking the throne. So if the resurrection is God saying, yes, vindicated, yes, everything Jesus said about the new kingdom is true. This is my kingdom. Then the ascension is Jesus taking his place on the throne. Now, I want to look at a few very important passages. First, Daniel 7. For, oh, actually, first I want to look at uh, the three-year-old, the three-year-old's guide to the ascension. Right, so we have this, this is how we teach um, the ascension for our twos and three-year-olds. Okay, so here's Jesus. He looks a little bit forlorn. This is him after the resurrection. Next we have Jesus and his disciples, and they're just happy to see him. And then next we have, oh look, his feet are cloud-covered. And then, okay, and there he goes. Bye. Okay, and... Okay, so, so it's funny to us. We have to teach it, right? We have to translate it down, right? So that's okay. Um, but it's funny to us, but how many of us still have this cartoonish picture of the ascension in our heads? Where it's just like, okay, so, um, and then a cloud covers him, and then when does that stop? Like, does he just keep going into space? Is he, where, where is he going? Because is he going to have trouble breathing, or is his resurrection body, like, built for that? Is that cool? Like, and what about the orbits and the, you know, rotation of the earth, and where is he going, right? And this, this, this is actually really difficult for people to get around because if the resurrection's not hard enough to believe, then we've got Jesus rising up and levitating and people are like, um, no, people don't do that, right? And what I would suggest to you is that, you know, some, some folks uh, would, would look at that and say, well, it's a metaphor. He's, he's showing them what it means. Well, no, I would say it's more of an acted out. He is doing something in order to get across a very important message. The, the message to his disciples would be, hey, I, I really am going for real. Like, I'm really leaving for real. I really did come from the Father, like I said, and I'm going back to ascend to my throne I will be gone, but I will be here. I will be reigning because I will be king of the universe. Now, one passage that helps us a lot is Daniel 7. Why don't we just look at 7, uh, 13 through 14 for now. In this passage, um, there's a description of four beasts coming out of the chaotic waters and, and they make war against each other. And then finally, the Ancient of Days is revealed and it shows his throne. And this is key, folks, because this makes sense of so many things in the New Testament. Do you guys recall what Jesus' favorite name for himself was? Son of Man. Son of Man. And this is very, very important because here, Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay? So let's get this stuck into our heads because this changes a lot of how we read a lot of passages of Scripture. He approached the Ancient of Days. This leads me to believe that the cloud is ascending. Okay? 
He was given what? Authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples in every language worshipped him. Now, how in the world does a first century Jew interpret that? Wait, there's a, wait, what? There's another, there's a man who's going to ascend on clouds and share God's authority and be worshipped? This was a great puzzle to first century Jewish, what we would call theologians or rabbis. Then it goes on to say, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this will explain when Caiaphas asks Jesus, hey, aren't you going to say anything? Are you? (laughs) And Jesus says, I am. And we think that's the great blasphemy, but I would suggest the great blasphemy is when he says, when he says, and to Caius, and you will know that this is true because you're going to see the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory. And that's when Caiaphas tear, tears his robes. This does not mean that, you know, someday in the future, Caiaphas, you're going to look out the window and, and there goes, just like in the Jetsons, there goes Jesus on his cloud. No, no. Jesus is saying, Caiaphas, within your lifetime, you're going to understand that I am that guy from Daniel 7. I am the Son of Man, and I approach the Ancient of Days and receive all power, all dominion, all sovereignty, and, and all worship from how many nations? All. How many people? All. And then we have Philippians 2 to round it off. And we're told that every knee will bow at what name? Jesus' name. He's given a name that is above every name. From God the Father. From Yahweh. This is very important. So Jesus doesn't just descend and become king and then rise and, and have God say, yep, he's the real deal. But no, when he ascends and goes up in the cloud... What Luke is trying to tell us, I'm submitting to you, is he's the real deal. He's ascending the throne and he's reigning right now. That's what the cloud is about. That's what it's about. Do not think that heaven is, you know, one slice of the orange and or earth is one slice and heaven's here and it's a spatial temporal thing. No, this passage isn't about that at all. It's about Jesus taking his rightful place on the throne. So now you know when the Thursday comes around, the 40th day after Easter, next next Ascension Day, now you know how to celebrate the Ascension. Because for years and years, this was one of our great feast days within our church family for, for centuries. And now it's kind of fallen away. We, you know you can't find an Ascension card? You can find Easter cards and Christmas cards and maybe not too many Pentecost cards. But, but the ascension is incredibly important because when Christ goes up and is enthroned, he's saying, before he's enthroned, he says, and they're not, the disciples can't possibly understand what he's saying. What he's trying to say is, I'm going to be going soon, for real. And I'm going to be reigning, for real. I'm going to give you power to do what you really can't do. (laughs) To be Jesus part two. 
for real. And the early church took this very seriously. And we will see this throughout the book of Acts, but I kind of want to round out today by giving us a little bit of hope because, yeah, it can be a little bit daunting, right? For, for someone to say, well, guess what? You're Jesus part two. And you're like, well, I don't feel like it today because I had a little argument with someone and, uh, this morning on the way and don't feel very Holy Spirity today. Well, good news. Good news. <laughs> good news. He uses all of us and he loves it. He thinks it's a kick to be able to use us just, just as a mother or father thinks it's a riot to watch a little child walk and stumble and walk and stumble and gradually learn to walk. He thinks it's wonderful. He loves it. And the early church took this so seriously, the idea that Jesus had inaugurated a new kingdom and was reigning on the throne and was living through them that several things changed. I just want to mention a few. Infanticide, a Roman, very common Roman practice. Folks would take their babies, right? Leave them on the rocks. It was called exposure. And guess what the Christians would do? They would, they would leave the cities, go out for a little walk, and they would gather up the babies and raise them for their own. And the Romans were like, what the heck? Because in the Roman mind, it's just like, what benefit can that possibly be to you? Because you have to now feed them and take care of them, right? And so that led to a lot of questions. Another thing that led to a lot of questions was, oh, surprise, surprise, women were being treated as equals. And the Romans couldn't understand this. Not only that, but slaves. If you read the great small letter of Philemon, Paul is talking about Onesimus as a brother and pleading with Philemon, the slave master, to really to to forgive them and let them go. It's absolutely crazy. And then one of my favorites, probably one of the craziest things the early church did, was they would, when there were these great plagues throughout the Roman empires in these cities, and people were dying left and right, the, the, the family members would leave so that they wouldn't die, and the Christians would go in. And I think that's such a beautiful picture from our family history our family heritage, when other people leave, we should be going in. When other people see suffering and they leave, we look at suffering and we go in because that's what Jesus did. He looked at Jerusalem. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die, but that's what his mission was. He became king that way. He was raised, was given the vindication, the stamp of approval, and ascended as the one who goes in and still to this day enters into the suffering of others. That is our kingdom heritage. That's our family heritage. And that's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do today. Thank you.